Hello and welcome to Invisible Heat. I am Sadia Khan. And I'm Asad Bhatt. And our story today takes us to Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, New York, in August of 1989. 32-year-old Elizabeth Galarza kneels on the gritty pavement of Bay Ridge Avenue. To her side, a 16-year-old African-American boy is clutching a candy bar. The boy has been shot in the chest, twice. He blinks up at Galarza, terror in his eyes as he clutches her hand. Come on, baby, you will be fine, she says. Just take small breaths, just relax, God's with you. Within minutes, emergency responders arrive, but it's too late. The boy is dead on arrival at Maimonides Medical Center. This is Invisible Hate. Welcome back to Invisible Hate in 2024, a weekly true crime podcast in which Asad and I attempt to uncover the ugly truths behind various hate crimes, both recent and historical. Yeah, that's right, Sadia. Welcome back to the new year. Many of our cases that we discuss involve crimes committed against minority groups. Our goal, as always, is to determine through a discussion of the nuances and complexities of these situations whether or not these transgressions are hate crimes or not. Sadia, is this the official start of season two of Invisible Hate? I think it should be season four or five, I said. (laughs) We've done a lot. (laughs) This is year two. Yeah, year two sounds better. By the way, happy 2024. Happy 2024, yes. Welcome to the new year. Are you a resolutions person? You know, I think I've had the same resolutions for the last like 15 years. Every year they just kind of re-up. It's to lose weight, sleep more, be more productive. You know, all those, all the kind of high level things. How about you? Ah, I'm not a resolutions person at all. I said, I'm not even a goals person. Oh, okay. But here's the thing. Yeah. Given what's transpired in 2023, I just want to be a better human more understanding of those who don't look like me because what we noticed in end of 2023 was a lot of well-intentioned nice liberal understanding people became genocidal all Mm, of a sudden so i hope everyone who's listening to us right now just does some introspection and just tries to be a better human. I think that's at the heart of what is important in life. Are you right? saying that I need to be a better human this year? Is that what you're is that what you're saying, Sadia? Maybe, <laughs> but I didn't want to say it directly to you, Asad. I feel like you and my wife maybe have been talking a lot. <laughs> no, I think that's a great goal, Sadia. I think if for anybody, no matter where they are in their journey, for sure. Do you have any goals for your podcasting company for professionally? Oh my gosh, Asad, we are so excited. Immigrantly Media is going to launch at least four new podcasts this four year. Four new podcasts? Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. All right. And we are launching one on January 10th, Bantedly. Oh, I'm by excited the way, for that By the one. time this episode releases, 
Bandily would have already been published and I'm so excited. It's already featured on Apple Podcasts in the top trailer, new and noteworthy sections. So really psyched about it. And although it's about Gen Z, I think all of us can listen to it as well. Sadia, I feel like they're going to be using language that I don't understand. <laughs> so I feel like maybe there needs to be like a secondary podcast that explains all the words that they use and the oh terminology. Gosh, I said, you and I can launch that. <laughs> yeah, maybe that we could be like a companion podcast for all the, <laughs> the Gen Xers that need to understand. The, the oh my gosh, that's so True. Five podcasts. It'll be your fifth podcast. It will be our <laughs> our second though. Refillion and immigrant. Yeah. yeah, that's true. That's true. I'm yeah. so excited for Refillion. I know you guys are doing some incredible work. And I hope we can collaborate some more in 2024. Yeah, as long as you think that I'm growing as a person, I feel like you'll want to work with me again. You're so. fine, I said. You're fine. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Should we get started with today's case? Yes. It's around 9 p.m. on August 23, 1989. Four black teenagers exit the N train at 20th Avenue and 64th Street in the white Italian working-class neighborhood of Bensonhurst, Brooklyn. The group consists of 16-year-old Yusuf Hawkins, 17-year-old Troy Banner, 17-year-old Luther Sylvester, and 18-year-old Claude Stanford. The four have traveled from the predominantly black Brooklyn neighborhood of East New York to meet with the owner of a used car for sale. Upon exiting the train, they stop briefly in a candy store to buy batteries, film, and candy. The boys then exit the store and walk south on 20th Avenue. Meanwhile, just a few blocks over at the intersection of 68th Street and 20th Avenue, a group of 30 to 40 white teenagers has gathered. Armed with baseball bats, golf clubs, and several other weapons, the group lies in wait, preparing to confront a group of black and Hispanic teenagers expected to attend the birthday party of a white female resident of the neighborhood. Yusuf Hawkins and his friends are not associated with the birthday party, but merely happen to be in the neighborhood at the time of the supposed party. At around 9.20 p.m., the four black teenagers pass 68th Street, unaware of the mass of white teenagers. As they pass, a young white boy on a bicycle races up the block, screaming, They're here, they're here. Someone yells racial slurs and encourages them to club the boys. Within seconds, the white mob rushes towards the teenagers in two groups of at least eight to ten individuals. The confused teens attempt to escape, but they are vastly outnumbered. Amid the chaos, Hawkins becomes separated from his friends. The teens are soon surrounded, Hawkins cornered by one group, his friends trapped by the other. His back against a wall with nowhere to run, Hawkins attempts to explain that he and his friends are looking for an address. But before he can properly clarify, one of the white teenagers darts around the corner 
gun in hand. In the blink of an eye, the boy fires four shots in Hawkins' direction. In the 2020 HBO documentary, Yusuf Hawkins, Storm Over Brooklyn, two of the black teenagers described the scene. As he stopped, a bunch of white guys came around the corner and surrounded us. Next thing I know, I hear gunshots. Salia, this is just so crazy. You know, I think we always talk about how quickly things escalate, but, you know, these are just four friends that are out on a night to have fun and for there to be a a mob waiting and then for them to be misidentified it just for things to escalate so quickly i I just it it's crazy so four shots were fired in hawkins direction did anything happen yes i said the bullets strike hawkins once in the left hand and twice in the chest the 16 year old immediately crumbles to the ground in shock the fourth and final shot graces Troy Banner's arm, a minor injury from which he will recover soon. Hawkins, however, is not so lucky. He lays across the pavement, unable to speak as the mob of white teenagers scatters. Having heard the shots, a 32-year-old woman named Elizabeth Galarza soon runs out of a nearby building to help the young man. She quickly calls 911 before kneeling down next to the boy to administer cardiopulmonary resuscitation. Bayley Avenue and 20th Avenue. Somebody just got shot. A bunch of white boys just shot a black guy. But it's too late. The bullets have caused fatal, irreparable damage to Hawkins' heart. The boy is soon declared dead at Maimonides Medical Center. You know, Salia, this is just absolutely heartbreaking. You know, they were so young. And I just think about how many times I've been out and about in the city, just kind of minding my own business with my friends. And then for them to come across a group of people that were targeting people that look like them. I mean, it just it's so scary that this stuff happens. How did people respond to the murder? Many New Yorkers were incredibly shaken by Hawkins' death, I said. They were devastated. According to the New York Times, the killing was quickly viewed as the most serious racial incident in New York City since that of the 1986 Howard Beach murder. Now, for those listeners who don't know about the 1986 murder, a black man was chased by two white men in December of 1986 onto a highway in Howard Beach, Queens. The man was killed by a passing motorist. As a result, the killing caused an uproar of rage and frustration across the city with many New Yorkers calling for justice, right? According to The Guardian, the incident flared racial tensions between New York's highly segregated neighborhoods. Civil rights leader, Reverend Al Sharpton quickly made his way to Brooklyn, where he led a series of marches and protests in Bensonhurst from 1989 to 1991. However, protesters were met with animosity from the residents of Bensonhurst who denied claims of racism. Denial, 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 I said. That's something that we've seen time and again. 
In September of 1989, members of the Hawkins family and other members of the black community gathered in Bensonhurst for one of their first marches. Led by Reverend Sharpton, the group marched through the Santa Rosalia Festival. As they marched, Bensonhurst residents held watermelons upon which they had written something so obnoxious and terrible. I said, do you want to share what they had written? Yeah, so they wrote in quotes, Al Sharpton, you fat bastard. And, you know, Sadia, the use of watermelons in this instance was intended as an attack on the black community as a whole. And then obviously that specific message towards Al Sharpton. I've never even heard of something as, as ridiculous as this. Right. Our tensions were incredibly high. During one protest in particular, in what was described by the New York Daily News as a day of outrage, protesters became somewhat violent, throwing bottles and rocks in frustration. Dozens of cops and demonstrators fought one another in a battle that lasted nearly 30 minutes. Wow, that's crazy. I, I, no clue that this had happened at all. To think that it happened in New York City as well. I guess this is 1989, so whatever, 30, 40 years ago. I guess I, I don't think of New York as being like this. I think what it tells me is that it really points to that these killings seem to have highlighted a larger racial issue within New York City at the time. You're absolutely right, Asit. For many, Hawkins' death became a symbol of the ongoing racism, prejudice, and discrimination faced by New York City's Black community. And we see it even now, in 2024. Isn't that crazy, Asit? Whatever happened in 1989 is still happening. And it happened in 79, 69, 59. I guess I shouldn't be so surprised. I guess I'm more surprised that I'd never heard of this before, of this incident happening. So, Sadi, how did the Hawkins family respond to his death? I said they were absolutely devastated. In an interview with the New York Post, Hawkins' father, Moses Stewart, said with sorrow, and I quote, My son went to a neighborhood and was blown down because of the complexion of his skin, unquote. On the porch behind Stuart, his wife and children sat sobbing. According to the New York Times, in a later interview with WLIB radio station, Stuart said, and I quote, to see my son's life wasted because of some indiscriminate fool with a gun in his hands, who saw nothing but a black man is a very, very vile thing to me. Who will pay for this? Who will pay? Unquote. Yeah, Salia, that's so incredibly sad and understandable that he's going through this emotion. And it's such a senseless death and caused by, you know, indiscriminately targeting someone because of their skin. Absolutely. Sadia, let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll discuss the victims and the perpetrators a little bit more. Welcome back to Invisible Hate. So, Sadia, can you tell us a little bit more about Yusuf Hawkins and the other three boys targeted in this attack? 
Absolutely, Asad. As previously mentioned, all four boys lived in the predominantly black Brooklyn neighborhood of East New York. According to the New York Times, at the time, 17-year-old Luther Sylvester was a student at Automotive High School and 18-year-old Claude Stanford was a hardware store clerk. Unfortunately, little is known about 17-year-old Troy Banner, who suffered a grazed right forearm in the attack. As for Hawkins himself, according to his father, the 16-year-old was very intelligent and had recently been accepted at a technical high school. Here's another relative of Hawkins talking about him in an interview for the HBO documentary Yusuf Hawkins, Storm Over Brooklyn. Yusuf, he had that little spark in him. He inspired his brothers. I saw it early on. My cousin's going places. It's always these young people that have so much going for them that really kind of upset me the most. And who knows where Yusuf would be today? We'll never know. We'll never know. You're right. I also think about the other three victims, like for this to happen when they're 17, 18 years old, they, you know, are scarred for the rest of their lives. Like, you know, as they're going about their daily lives and walking around the city, like they're probably constantly in fear of walking into the wrong place or the wrong group of people and being targeted. It's just ugh, so senseless. Sadhya, can you tell me about the perpetrators of the crime, like this mob that had gathered? So I said there are certainly many teenagers who contributed to this violent incident. Remember, I mentioned 30 to 40. In fact, around 30 teenagers are believed to have been involved, only eight of whom were later charged. However, there are two individuals in particular who are believed to have been largely responsible for this horrendous act. 18-year-old Keith Mondello and 19-year-old Joseph Farmer. At the time, Mondello was a construction supervisor at DG Enterprises. The 18-year-old was largely responsible for creating the circumstances in which the shooting basically occurred. Mondello had allegedly become angry after learning that his ex-girlfriend and neighbor, Gina Feliciano, had begun dating a Hispanic man as well as hanging out with black and Hispanic teenagers. In response, he had warned Feliciano not to bring any of her black or Hispanic friends into the neighborhood. Despite this, word got out that Feliciano had invited these particular friends to her birthday party on August 23, the night of the attack. Hmm. However, on August 22nd, Feliciano warned her friends to stay away after Mondello and others claimed that her black friends, and I quote, didn't belong in the neighborhood and ominously implied they would not be welcome. This sounds so scary, I said. They are already threatening black and Hispanic kids. Well, she did not tell the white teenagers this, however, which to me is bizarre. She should have warned everyone. In fact, according to Feliciano's friend, Tanya Moore, Feliciano told the local white youth that her black friends were in fact coming to the party and that they would beat them up. 
On the night of Feliciano's party, Mondello and his friends gathered on the street outside of her home, awaiting the arrival of the black and Hispanic teenagers. The group had one goal, to beat up Feliciano's friends. The crowd continued to grow between the hours of 7 and 9 p.m. as word spread that the girls' friends would be coming. Some brought bats ready to partake in the beating. Others came out of curiosity, seeking a front row seat to the beating. Mondello himself held a bat, riling the teenagers up. The white mob is believed to have mistaken Hawkins and his friends for the long-anticipated group of Feliciano's friends. Yeah, sadly, I, I mean, I, I recognize that this is reality. It just sounds like it's out of a movie. It does. It's like fiction, but here it is, you know, fact. And I feel like we've seen these scenes in movies before, of like, you know, someone saying, Let, let's go and let's grab the bats and the guns and all that kind of stuff and to see that this happened in real life in a major city you know in the united states is really just a a crazy story so what about the second teenager joseph fama so as a 19 year old joseph fama is believed to have been the teenager to shoot yusuf hawkins on that fatal summer night in 1989 In 1974, when Fama was three years old, he was involved in a car accident. The accident is believed to have left Fama with early brain damage. According to a New York Times interview with Dr. Paul Berger Gross, a clinical neuropsychologist at State University of New York Health Science Center in Brooklyn, Joseph had depressed intelligence memory and cognitive flexibility consistent with early brain damage. Pharma mm. was found to have the low normal IQ of 72 with the academic achievement of a child in the second to fifth grades. Perhaps because of this, the 19-year-old had dropped out of school in eighth grade. Some contend that on the day of the attack, someone else had given Fama the gun. However, others argue that Fama had already been carrying a gun in his waistband. Yes, yeah, it sounds like a really messy situation. And I think what I'm gathering here is that many of the white teenagers participating in the mob were unaware that Fama would have a gun or would pull a gun or, or anything like that. Like, but I don't know. If you see someone with a baseball bat, it's more than just, a, you know, a brawl that's about to happen. Sadia, let's take a quick break again. When we come back, let's discuss the investigation and the trials that follow Hawkins' death. Welcome back to Invisible Hate. So, Sadia, how did police go about identifying the individuals involved in this crime? Because you said there were 30 of them. Was there like a big investigation? Yes, I said there was, in fact, an investigation. The police recovered at least seven bats near the crime scene, as well as four bullet shells shot from a 32 caliber semi-automatic pistol. They never recovered the gun, however. Following the attack, the police interviewed almost 60 witnesses. 
They spoke extensively with Gina Feliciano, who had witnessed the mob of teenagers gather from her apartment and was able to identify several individuals involved in the mob. Now, this sounds strange to me, Asit. Gina was watching this as this horror unfolded. And it really pisses me a bit. Like, why? I mean, she, in some ways, was part of all of this. And yet she was just watching it silently through her apartment window. I wish she had called the police at that time. I, I hear what you're saying. I, I guess, like, just knowing how crowds are and how people are who are watching crowds. Like, I, I, I don't know how much responsibility I would put on you. I hear what you're saying, but I think it's hard for me to put myself in her shoes and her thinking. Like, did she actually think that something bad was about to happen? I mean, with baseball bats, I said, it was quite obvious, wasn't it? Maybe they were going to play baseball. <laughs> right. No, I, I agree. I mean, I think I understand what you're saying is, is what I'll say. Yeah. Anyways, using this witness information, police began taking several teenagers into custody. The police soon determined Joseph Farmer to be the shooter and immediately launched a manhunt for the 19-year-old boy. After the shooting, Farmer had fled to upstate New York. He ultimately surrendered to police in Oneonta, New York, 150 miles north of New York City, on August 31, 1989. Sally, what can you tell us about the trials after the investigation? So I said ultimately eight of the white teenagers involved in the mob were charged with various crimes. According to the New York Times, four of these individuals were charged with depraved indifference murder. This essentially means that they were aware of a substantial risk of death and consciously chose to disregard this risk, therefore showing a depraved indifference to human life. In addition to these four individuals, Mondello and Farmer were charged with both depraved indifference murder and intentional murder. Each of the defense lawyers representing this group of teenagers took a different approach to this argument. Some sought to distance their clients from Joseph Farmer, claiming that they did not know him well or even at all and therefore did not have any connection to his alleged violent actions. According to the New York Times, some even claimed that he was a violent, prone youth. Others, however, seemed far more willing to back Farmer. As a whole, many defense lawyers chose to attack the credibility of Gina Feliciano, the prosecution's chief witness. They sought to attack both her motives and background, highlighting the teenager's history of drug abuse as a means of casting her in an unstable and unreliable light. According to many law enforcement sources, however, much of what Feliciano told them was corroborated by other sources. As said, in terms of the prosecution's case against Farmer, the most incriminating evidence against him was a vivid statement reported to police by Keith Mondello, who claimed that he had seen Farmer shoot Hawkins. Wasn't Mondello the guy who orchestrated all of this, Asit? Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. However, Mondello's lawyers later claimed that his statement had been made under duress, forced out of his client during questioning. No surprises there. 
The prosecution had other evidence, however. According to Pharma versus Commissioner of Correctional Services, while in custody on two separate occasions, Pharma allegedly told two different people that he intentionally shot Hawkins because he was black. Mm, wow. The testimony of jailhouse informant and criminal named Charles Brown played a large role in Farmer's trial. According to Brown's court testimony, while in custody, Farmer had told him, and I quote, I shot him, I shot him, I can't bring him back, unquote. Farmer, however, claimed that had he committed the crime, it would have been illogical for him to confess to a random man, particularly one that was African-American, given the nature of the crime. In an interview with a broadcasting station associated with the CW television network, Farmer explains. Look what I'm accused of, and Charles, Charles Brown's African-American. Why would I confess to him? I feel like he actually makes some good points. Like, if he was this racist that hated black people, why would he then make a confession to someone that was uh, African-American? Like, and I totally get like, you know, he's he was probably bragging and it didn't matter who he was bragging to, you know, and we've seen this before as well. But uh, yeah. Ultimately, Fama was convicted on one of two accounts of murder in the second degree Riot in the first degree, criminal possession of a weapon in the third degree, three counts of unlawful imprisonment in the first degree, three counts of menacing and four counts of discrimination. On June 11, 1990, he was sentenced to a total of 32 years and eight months to life in prison for each of these charges. Oh, for each of the charges. Wow. Yeah. Mondello, on the other hand, was ultimately acquitted in Hawkins' killing, which to me is extremely bizarre because he was probably the mastermind or at least he orchestrated part of it. I just don't get it, Asad. My assumption is maybe that there just wasn't enough evidence to prove that he wanted people to die or went there with the intent to murder. He wanted to go there for violence, but not murder. The good thing is he was convicted on several other charges, including that of riot, unlawful imprisonment, menacing, discrimination, and criminal possession of a weapon. On June 11, 1990, he was sentenced to a total of five years and five months to 16 years in prison. Ultimately, Justice Owens sentenced both Farmer and Mondello to maximum prison terms for their roles in the killing of Hawkins, forcing both young men to serve significant time for their violent actions. Most of the other defendants were either acquitted or received community service sentences. With that, let's get to our primary question of the episode. Asad, should the murder of Yusuf Hawkins be considered a hate crime? Yeah, I mean, Saudi, I think there's no doubt for me in this one. I think that, yes, it, it should be considered a hate crime. It should have been prosecuted as a hate crime as well. There was clear motivation that they were targeted because of the color of their skin and the fact that they were looking to 
cause trouble and violence and they were looking to target you know people of a specific background so yeah i think 100% for me this was racially motivated how about you you're right asit but i do want to point to a few other factors that we could consider for instance jealousy now mondello <laughs> yeah. believed feliciano his ex-girlfriend to be dating one of the black or hispanic men right perhaps he was just jealous and not racially motivated during the attack one teenager is believed to have yelled let's get even with gina let's show gina so the focus was on gina in some ways the second factor to consider would be that mondello claims to have been threatened by feliciano who allegedly told him that her black and hispanic friends would beat them up So do you think it was a fear response um in some ways? Yeah, I mean, uh, you you make a good point. I mean, let's think about it. So if if the four people that came across them were teenagers but were they were white, would they have been targeted? Hmm. I don't think so because they were specifically looking for people that were Hispanic or black or other, you know. And so presumably they were in a part of town where there were a lot of people coming and going but weren't they looking for black and hispanic teenagers asad because they knew that feliciano's boyfriend was hispanic so in an alternate universe where feliciano's boyfriend was white they would have been looking for white teenagers to come and beat them up and kill them i don't know asad i don't know we are just deliberating right and To me it's you're right in a parallel universe if Feliciano's boyfriend was white and if she threatened Mondello that her boyfriend and his friends would beat them up would they do what they did in this situation that's the question right were their response were their attempt to entrap people and would the mob have been assembled I, i just don't i don't see it i think it was motivated because of their race You know what I would love our listeners to chime in. So if you think this was racially motivated hate crime, write to us. Or if you think that this was mere jealousy, even then write to us. Tell us what you think. Would love to hear your thoughts on this. Tell tell me I'm wrong just like Sadia does every <laughs> week. So Sadia, where are Mondello, Fama and the surviving victims and even the Hawkins family? Where are they all now? Asad Mandela was released from prison in 1998 after serving 8 years behind bars. Soon after Mandela's release, he met with Hawkins' father Moses Stewart in private to apologize to him and his family for his actions. He now appears to recognize his role in the 16-year-old's death for which he is regretful. In 2014, he told the Daily News, and I quote, that kid was shot for no reason at all it was completely senseless i would do anything to give yusuf hawkins his life back unquote according to oxygen true crime after his release montello attended st francis college where he graduated with a degree in sociology he later married and has a daughter i mean i think all of that is really great you know sadly that he recognized and apologized for what he did he served a sentence and he has presumably you know gone on to leave a 
lead a better life than, you know, what he did when he was a teenager. So, yeah, I think I think this is all good stuff. As for Joseph Farmer, to this day, he continues to assert that he is not responsible for Hawkins' death, that he was not the one to shoot the 16-year-old boy. In an interview for the HBO documentary, here's Farmer talking about how he thinks he's innocent. It wasn't my friends, and it, and it wasn't me. Farmer remained in a maximum security prison in Danemora, New York, through 2021. He is believed to have been eligible for release in April of 2022, with a parole hearing scheduled for December 2021. However, it is uncertain as to whether or not Farmer has been released. As for Troy Banner, Luther Sylvester, Claude Stanford and the family of Yusuf Hawkins, we can only hope that they have all managed to overcome the trauma and grief of the 1989 attack and have gone on to live happy and healthy lives. Yeah, thanks for that update, Sadia. And, you know, we just want to add that while race relations in New York City and across the nation have in many ways appeared to improve since 1989 when this happened, many Black Americans tragically continue to face discrimination and violence to this day. And, you know, these struggles are evidenced by the powerful efforts by organizations like Black Lives Matter. It's important that we continue to have these conversations in an effort to not only highlight the victims and their stories, but also to continue to break down these prejudices and make people aware of them. So, Sadia, what can our listeners do to help? I said, while there's no direct way to help support the victims of a crime that occurred over 30 years ago, Listeners can aid in the overall fight against these types of crimes and discriminatory actions by taking part in or supporting the Black Lives Matter movement, as well as getting involved in or donating to nonprofit organizations such as the National Action Network, the Grassroots Law Project, Color of Change, and many others that seek to protect and advance the rights of Black individuals across the nation. This was an important conversation, first conversation of 2024. Let us know your thoughts. Thanks so much for listening to Invisible Heat. If you want to learn more, check out links in the show notes about the case. Please email us your thoughts on this story or any other story that you think we should cover. You can reach us at info at invisibleheatpodcast.com. You can also tweet us or hit us up on Instagram. Just search for Invisible Hate Podcast. Thanks again for listening. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. Invisible Hate is a joint production of Rafaelion Media and Immigrantly. We'd like to thank our team, which includes Michaela Strather, Emmanuel Monahan, and Parama Chakravarti. Our music was done by Simon Hutchinson. We'll be back next week with another hate crime for us to analyze. Until then, I'm Asad Butt. And I'm Sadia Khan. Huh?